Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I am Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each week, um, I am happy to invite a guest to discuss with me the weekly Torah portion, the Parashat HaShavuah, that section of the five books of Moses that is read in synagogues throughout the world. Uh, new Parshians begin their reading on uh, the first day of the week, as it's called in the Jewish calendar Sunday, and the last reading of it takes place on Shabbat, the Saturday. This week, our Parsha is called Vayishlach. It begins in Genesis 32 and continues through Genesis 36. It is the last of the uh, parshiot concerning uh, Jacob's uh, life with his wives. Uh, following this, we'll turn to the Joseph epic. But here's a summary of this week's parasha. Jacob returns to the land of Israel after a 20-year stay in Canaan and sends angel emissaries to Esau, his brother, in hopes of a reconciliation. His messengers report that Esau is coming towards Jacob with 400 armed men. Jacob prepares for a war, prays, and sends Esau a large gift to appease him. That singular evening, Jacob ferries his family and possessions across the Jabok River, and he remains behind and once again uh, encounters the angels with whom he wrestles with until daybreak. The interpretation of who that angel is may be part of our conversation this morning. Jacob suffers a dislocated hip but vanquishes the supernal creature who bestows upon him a new name, Israel, Yisrael, which means he who prevails over the divine. Eventually, Jacob and Esau meet, embrace, and part ways. Jacob purchases a plot of land near Shechem, whose crown prince, also called Shechem, abducts and violates Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. Dina's brothers, Simeon and Levi, avenge the deed by killing all the male inhabitants of the city after rendering them vulnerable by convincing them to circumcise themselves. Jacob journeys on. While on his journey, Rachel dies while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, and is buried in a roadside grave near Bethlehem. Reuven the eldest son loses the birthright because he interferes with his father's marital life. Jacob arrives in Hebron to visit his father Isaac, who later dies at age 180. The parasha concludes with a detailed account of Esau's wives, children, and grandchildren. 
and a list of the eight kings who ruled Edom, the land of Esau and Seir's descendants. As you can tell, this parasha is filled with interesting episodes, some of which stand on their own, and some are a continuation of past stories. With me this morning is Rabbi Mark H. Levin, a rabbi, a native of Baltimore, Maryland, a graduate of Boston University and a graduate of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, where he was ordained a rabbi. Recently, he completed his doctorate of Hebrew letters through HUCJAR in New York, and received his honorary doctor of divinity from the same institution. He has been the congregational rabbi of congregation Beth Torah in Kansas since its inception in 1988. He is the father of three children and the grandfather of one child. And it is a pleasure to re-welcome Rabbi Levin to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I hope that you are well. All is well, thank God. Good. Um, This week's parasha begins with this uh, continuation of the story of Jacob. But Jacob, in and of himself, has a name which cries out for us to discuss, uh, referring back to the very beginning of the uh, plot in which he is born as the second of twins. So why don't we start there? What is Jacob's name all about, and how does that impact on its being changed? Yes, uh, Jacob is the third, of course, of the patriarchs, with the emphasis being on Abraham and his grandson, Jacob, with Isaac being an interim, who's not an unimportant character, uh, but seemingly somewhat less important than Abraham and Jacob. Uh, For myself, I'd like to emphasize that Jacob, of whom we read, uh, in these two powers, she wrote last week and this week, uh, to, to my mind, is very much the, the most important, although there's no gainsaying the fact that Abraham, uh, the, the covenant is made first with Abraham and is continued with Isaac and with Jacob. And one really does have to deal with these uh, all of these stories uh, together. So when we look at Jacob, uh, his character is portrayed in, in his name. He comes out grasping his brother's heel. Uh, his twin brother's heel uh, emerges from the womb, and, and the word for heel in Hebrew is akev. Uh, and, and he is named uh, with that very same Hebrew root. But it also, akev also means deceiver. Uh, and, and so it would seem that there's something deceptive about him. And in last week's parasha, uh, he deceives, well, his, his brother sells him the birthright. Esau sells to Jacob the birthright. But it does seem to be a little bit of an act, act, act of taking advantage, if not deception. And then, perhaps course, the listeners will remember that uh, story in which Esau ref- returns from hunting, asks his brother Jacob, who, uh, as listeners re- may remember, was not a hunter, who was sitting at home preparing 
a meal for his brother and says, uh, Esau, if you're really hungry, I'll give you some of this lentil soup if you sell me your birthright. Uh, it's somewhat akin to, to buying Manhattan Island for $23. <laughs> and not renegotiating uh, the deal. And not, yes, right. So, so, and, and and then of course he gets the uh, blessing. He, he, so to, so to speak, prolongs the blessing uh, by deceiving his father, and 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 he deceives his father and his mother's uh, order, uh, strong suggestion, let us say, uh, uh, by by wearing a cloak that would that would deceive his father into believing that that he was Esau, uh, and then lie to his father about which son. Um, and then, of course, that he gets away with it. That Jacob gets away with it because his father is, is Isaac is is very nearly blind. Uh, you, we will see in, in the as the story continues that Jacob is punished for this uh, uh, by being deceived by his father-in-law Laban when he marries uh, uh, his two wives Leah and Rachel. He is deceived in darkness and he gets the wrong bride. Wrong, marries the wrong woman. Uh, and and he is deceived by deception uh, uh, in in the same fashion, I suppose, in, in saying in the darkness of night, uh, he believes that he's negotiating for Rachel, and he is in fact negotiating for Leah. So the Bible has this idea that uh, the punishment should fit the crime, and indeed Jacob is uh, punished uh, for his deception. And then when he returns, and now we re- now we get to this week's Torah portion. Uh, when he returns to the land of Israel, uh, as you said, he wrestles with an angel, and and he changes his character. And the change in character, realizing after being gone for twenty years uh, about his deceptive nature, the change in character is captured in the name Yisrael, one who strives with God and prevails. And so we we see here that Jacob, the the ancestor of Israel, the man whose name uh, who gives his name to the people Israel and to the land of Israel. Uh, the, this patriarch who is, to, to my mind, the most important of the patriarchs, uh, is born one way, but learns in his 20 years with his father-in-law Laban and his two wives the kind of person that God wants him to be. And that, for me, is the upshot of this story. What's interesting, as you uh, allude to it, is that having been born with the title of deceiver, trickster, and being introduced to us in his uh, family of origin through his actions as a deceiver, something transforms him. And you suggest that it's its experience with his father-in-law, Laban, who tricks him into accepting one bride for another and then renegotiates the agreement for Rachel in a way that, uh, again, deceives him. But interestingly enough, through all of this, um, the covenantal relationship between Jacob and God is certainly quite secondary. Um it only appears to my looking at the text that he has these two encounters with God in the dreams, one 
um, in last week's parasha about the angels going up and down the ladder, and he tries to bargain with God about whether he will actually be um, a descendant of the covenant. Uh, and then in this week's parasha, he has this wrestling experience. Um, so why does the Torah require Jacob to go through these machinations? It doesn't do that for Isaac, and it doesn't really do it for Abraham. What's so special about Jacob? Yes, uh, you and I had a teacher of Bible at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati by the name of Hanan Brichto. And Professor Brichto said memorably, there's no one in the Bible to whom you'd like to be related. Uh, it, it was, of course, a joke, but his point was that the characters in the Bible are very real persons. And a professor uh, by the name of um, uh, Ellen Davis at, at uh, Duke suggests in her book, uh, uh, Opening Israel's Scriptures, that, that the biblical characters are open to change, that they're open to growth. And the idea of blessing is that, that God confers blessing, meaning that, that, uh, the people could take advantage of God's favor. And here you have a Jacob who shows the potential and, and then shows the actuality of being able to grow in his relationship with God. And I very much appreciate the fact, Rabbi, that you point out, uh, that the covenantal relationship seems to be in the background, but it seems to me also that the covenantal relationship in the background is, in fact, the main subject uh, as Jacob uh, is growing in that relationship. Uh, at the beginning of last week's parasha, Jacob attempts to, it says, the Bible says that he makes a vow. If God remains with me, if he protects me on this journey that I am making and gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return to my father's house safe, the Lord will be my God. So he seems to have this conception of God uh, that is very much transactional, that, that, that says that God is, is a being to be dealt with. Now, God does not punish him for this, but clearly you see that God understands that there needs to be a good level of spiritual growth here. And I think that we see that in this relationship. I mean, after all, he caves into his mother's demands uh, that he deceive his father, which, is, which Jewish tradition treat, and the Bible treats as wrong. But he's allowed to grow. And, and, and so in this week's parish on chapter 35, uh, beginning in verse 9, God appeared again to Jacob on his arrival at Padanaram, and he blessed him. Notice that this blessing again is openness to the possibility of change and God's favor. God said to him, you whose name is Jacob, and I'm going to translate here as deceiver, uh, you shall be called Jacob no more, but Israel shall be your name. That is one who strives with God and prevails. And thus he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai, be fertile and increase. A nation, yea, an assembly of nations shall descend from you. Kings from issues from your loins. The land that I assigned to Abraham and Isaac, I assigned to you and to your offspring to come. Will I assign the land? And so we see that this covenantal relationship and promise, which is given prior to this, to both Abraham and uh, Abraham in chapter twelve and chapter seventeen, and then again to Isaac, uh, is is given here prominently to Jacob to continue as his name is then attached to both land and peoplehood. It seems to me then 
that the covenantal relationship and the story of Israel in relationship to God is in fact the bedrock, not only of Israel's life, but all of Jewish history. So um, as you were chatting about the foundational notion of covenant, it struck me that, of course, Abraham doesn't begin life as Avraham. He begins life as Avram. And Sarah doesn't begin life as uh, Sarah. She begins life as Sarai. And the covenant is uh, noted in their change of name. Um, Isaac never has a change of name. He seems to be simply a bridge between uh, Abraham and Jacob. But Jacob's change of name is different. It's not including God's uh, name within him. It's not the Hebrew hey that's added. It's a content of the relationship, this notion of struggling and the notion that his descendants will spend eternity struggling with uh, the covenant. Do you read anything into that dynamic of um, two different kinds of name changes? You know, it's to, to my mind, Abraham begins and continues as this person who realizes that, that God cannot be embodied in an idol. He's the original iconoclast. Our, our literature, of course, says, not the Bible, but, but the Midrash uh, says that he breaks his father's idols and his father was an idol maker. And this is a great story in terms of folklore because it says that all the previous generations were at least mentally, if not physically, idol makers. But the covenant uh, with Abraham uh, means uh, there, there's very much this idea of justice. And so uh, in Abraham's argument with God over Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? And this is the paramount relationship. But I don't know that Abraham really goes, uh, really demonstrates a change in character. Although our tradition says that there are these 10 trials, and so he does grow. Uh, but but, uh, but uh, Jacob, it seems to me, starts out on the negative side uh, and, and must go from, an, from uh, a, a quality that we would not want uh, to bring up very often, right? This notion of deceiver. And yes, this is the human story, to my mind. Uh, this is the story of how created by a God who cares about us and demands, as Abraham said, justice, okay, that, that Jacob, who goes against the standard of justice put forward by, uh, Jake, uh, by, by his grandfather Abraham, must come to grips as we all must come to grips. So therefore, it's a human story. As we all must come to grips with the idea of God, a God that demands justice. And so at the end, what, what happens with Jacob? Jacob, uh, in wrestling, settles in no longer a transactional relationship, which is not the kind of relationship we, we want with God. Uh, it's not the highest of relationships, but simply in a partnership. And I think, you know, you talk about the, the chapter of the rape of Dina, uh, chapter 34. You know, uh, uh, Jacob opposes uh, what his sons have done. 
The, the whole idea of covenant comes out there in terms of circumcision. They demand circumcision in order to join Jacob's family, uh, but they use it as a ploy. And Jacob, again, there sees the injustice, it seems to me, of, 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 of what, uh, uh, Levi, uh, yeah, Ashimon and Levi do, uh, in, in killing their adversaries, but they employ this standard of Jewish life. Uh, of uh, circumcision so, so in order I'm, to, to I'm, gain. I'm interested that you see Jacob as more than neutral about the heinous crimes of his sons. Most biblical commentators see him as quite passive in the episode of Dina, that he is um, really uh, muted in that episode. And once again, we wonder where is the uh, Jacob who wrestles with God? Where is the Jacob who is the descendant of Abraham? Um, but you seem to have a somewhat different take on this. Yes. In chapter 49, when, when uh, uh, Jacob is blessing his sons, in the blessing to Shimon and Levi, uh, he puts them together and he says in 49.5, Shimon and Levi are a pair. Their weapons are tools of lawlessness. Let not my person be included in their counsel. Let not my being be counted in their assembly. For when they are angry, they slay men. And when, and, and when pleased, they maim oxen. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their wrath so relentless. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. So, so again, for the listeners, let us just remind them that chapter 49 comes at the end of Jacob's life as he is offering blessing to all of his children. During the initial episode, which takes place in our parasha, chapter 37, is that what it is? 34. Or chapter 34. 34 he does seem to be muted in his criticism of his sons, but you so nicely remind us all, including the listeners, that that seems to be a momentary gap that uh, at the end of his life, somewhat similar to other experiences in the Torah, when the protagonist is reaching the end of his life, he articulates something that we wish we had heard him say earlier, but the Torah reminds us again, as you uh, have suggested, that people change. People can reflect on things, on behaviors that um, they were silent or avoided. And uh, here, Jacob, at the end of his life, reminds Shimon and Levi that they are not pure. Um, and, and I would, if, if I may go a little farther in this, in that uh, I, I think... To, to my mind, and that maybe this is lore, um, uh, Jacob is reminding himself that he had a choice. Uh, he could obey his, his mother, Rebecca, and deceive his father, or perhaps there was a method to be able to go to his father and say, Dad, this is not the way God wants to work this out. I don't want to deceive you. Uh, Mom is encouraging me to do that. But frankly, you know, God's intention is uh, for me to get the blessing. And so I think that that's that you should confer the blessing on me. In other words, it could have been honest. So perhaps when uh, sh when Dina is is later raped, 
and he sees what what might transpire with Shimon and Levi, or maybe he's already seen what has transpired. He keeps his mouth shut, but he was reminded, perhaps, that he too had a choice, as Shimon and Levi had a choice, and they chose a deception as he did. Right, the deception being okay. You guys get circumcised, and you can join the family. Uh, you know, perhaps there, Jacob said they did the wrong thing, and this will come out. And uh, in chapter forty-nine, when he blesses, this is not just blessing; this is also prediction. And I think he's also saying, as as my bad choice has affected my life, so your bad choice will affect yours now and forever. If we can, I want to shift gears for the time that's available to us and look at this episode concerning Dina. Um, there are few women who are highlighted in the Hebrew scriptures known as the Torah. Uh, we have Miriam, uh, Moses's sister who tradition calls a prophet and who takes um, an interesting role during the book of Exodus. Um, the wives of the patriarchs all have interesting stories. Um, but Dina is the daughter of the third patriarch. We read of the story in which she goes out, the text tells us, to wander among uh, the people of Shechem. And then we have an interesting episode in which the son of the king and Dina have sexual relations, um, and the king's son comes to Isaac and says, I want to marry your daughter. And now um, the Shimon and Levi say, well, you can only marry them if you convert, and circumcision is part of the process of conversion. And as you've suggested, once they're painfully recovering from this adult circumcision, um, they are slaughtered. Where does this fit in the whole uh, epic of the Torah? Or is it a later insertion? You know, for, for me, this is part of the story of circumcision in general. Uh, it shows both the importance of circumcision uh, in the history of the Jewish people, which I'll get to in a second, and again, um, the importance of, uh, of honesty uh, and straightforward negotiations. That, that, for me, and I don't know that it's an insertion. I'm not a biblical historian, but I don't know that it would be an insertion. Let me say something about circumcision. At the very beginning uh, of the patriarchs, Abraham, of course, uh, circumcises his, his son Isaac. Uh, and, and Abraham himself is circumcised by his wife. And, and Abraham is circumcised. Later on in Exodus, we will have this very dramatic uh, story at, at, at the beginning. I think it's in chapter two of, of uh, no, a little bit after, chapter four. Uh, and Moses and, and Zipporah, his wife and the two boys, returning to Egypt, and they are confronted by the bridegroom of blood, uh, as as the Bible calls it, and, and they will. And Moses's life is threatened, and it is Zipporah who realizes that what is required here is the circumcision of the boys. Uh, 
here uh, with the story of Dina, we had this uh, uh, story of in order to get into the, the tribe, uh, you have to be part of the tribe, and circumcision is the hallmark. When the people enter the land uh, in Joshua, the very first thing that is done is they enter the land because they haven't been circumcised for the 40 years in the wilderness is a circumcision ceremony, and the, and the foreskins are piled up at Gilgal. Now, it seems to me, that, therefore, that this is a story of what does it mean to have a hallmark of belonging to, uh, to the Jewish people, that circumcision is a primary sign. And indeed, for the last 4,000 years, uh, although circumcision was not solely among the Jews, it was among other uh, Middle Eastern people, uh, but, but here you have this, this hallmark that continues among us to this day, even among families that are not particularly observant, uh, you do see this as a, as the sign of the covenant. And so I see it as part of the covenantal relationship between the Jewish people and God. Now, what we think that covenantal relationship is, you know, there's certainly a covenant with land and there's a covenant with commandment, okay? but it's the covenantal relationship that is at the very uh, uh, bedrock of this relationship between the Jewish people, Israel, right, and and God. And somehow that covenant cannot be abrogated, that we are called by Isaiah in chapter 40, a light and, to the and nations. I, and I uh, mistakenly invited us to enter into a new discussion and find ourselves short of time. Ah. But I want to thank you for suggesting that the story of Dina is not about Dina per se, but about circumcision. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Mark Levin of Kansas City. Uh, and you can find a podcast of this morning's conversation on iTunes or the CHRI website. I wish you, our listeners, shalom and a good day. <laughs>